Hello and welcome to the Relationship Breakthrough Show from Aligned With Love. I'm Matt. And I am Rebecca. This is the place for people to have a magical, loving, intimate relationship. Thanks for joining us now. Let's get started. Today, I'm delighted and honoured to be joined by the incredible Piers Cross, who I've had the pleasure of knowing personally for several years through the men's events that he's run and supported, such as MenFest, which is happening again this summer. We're going to be talking about that later. Also, he's supported countless men in overcoming their past traumas to discover their truth through his writing and coaching work. He's a really powerful story that he's going to be sharing with us. And he's got a book entitled How to Survive and Thrive in Challenging Times, 101 Ways to Cultivate Resilience, Wellbeing and Inner Peace in All Areas of Your Life. The highlights include having his sharing his trauma through childhood and boarding school, three years living in a Buddhist monastery, and then emerging determined to support other men going through similar experiences. He's the host of an Evolving Man podcast where he interviews thought leaders in the area of masculine psychology. And while we're going to be focusing today on men's issues, this is also going to be really powerful for women listening today to hear this, to get an understanding from men's experience and perspective on how we tend to deal with and process traumatic events and how that can then show up in our relationships right now. So firstly, welcome Piers and thanks a lot for joining me today. I just wanted to start Piers if I if I could by asking you, uh, I know you've written and spoken a lot, a lot about trauma and how it affects us, but I'd love to hear when was the point in your life where you realised that there were things, traumas that you were going to have to deal with if you're going to have healthy relationships? You know, in my 20s, on an external level, I was very functional. I had gone to a, 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 one of the top business schools in Europe. I was working in the city in London. And to the, the world, I looked like I was a high-functioning adult. You know, um, But internally, I was miserable as hell. I hated the job I was doing telesales for this big Fortune 500 company and earning good money, but just really, really miserable. So I don't know if I necessarily realized at that point that I needed help, but I knew I was a mess. And so I think around that time, I started to do research uh, and read books, Dalai Lama, and this was 1997. I think it was really not until probably 2002 that I realized actually I need to, to, to I need some help here I mean around 1997 when I began on the journey I realized I was in this relationship with this woman and I didn't love her I realized I'd never loved anything anyone or anything and it was at that point that I realized that I, there was a struggle but I, I didn't really make it conscious that I should do something about it I thought that I'm broken. Well, I, you know, um, it wasn't until 2002, around the time I went into the monastery, I was suddenly, it came up about boarding school. And I think it was then that I need to heal this. And I think, yeah, I did actually have a conscious moment, 2001, just before the monastery. I was looking after my grandfather in Devon. It was uh, winter. And it was at that point that I realised... I'd always been taking care of other people and at that point I realized I needed to start taking care of myself 
that I needed to do some healing. So yeah, that was the point really. I see. That's really fascinating. And what, what was there a particular moment where you had like a an aha moment, a sort of along the lines of, look, I'd need to do something about me here. What was going on for you at that time specifically? <sighs> Yeah, so I'd just got back from Africa, so I'd worked in the city till 2000, and then within a few months I'd left my partner, I was more or less homeless. My father had got cancer and then died six months later. I'd, you know, I'd split up, I'd left my home, and I then went, eventually lived, went to live in Africa. Um, and my way of kind of dealing with that was just to drink take drugs uh prostitution you know i was like trying to find some way of healing my trauma but on an external level um so i think when i got back to england 2001 and my grandfather's place it was suddenly at that point realizing i'm an absolute mess i'm going insane you know i'd had alcohol alcohol poisoning while in africa and it was like, okay, I need to do something about me here. If I don't, I won't survive very long or I'll be sectioned. And it was that point around then it was like, okay, I'm a total mess. Yeah, I see, I get it. Well, that's incredible that you were self-aware enough to realize that you need to do something about this and you, you didn't just keep spiraling because that sounds, uh, I, I'm curious though with the Buddhist monastery, you know, that, mm. that's quite, incredible spending three years in a Buddhist monastery as you were getting yourself together mm. I'd love to know how did you connect with that what, what was your <laughs> attraction I guess to, to going to the monastery well I think you know whether you call it synchronicity or you know so it was around 2000 uh, you know 2001 I started to write I needed something and I got that sense while I was at my grandfather's November, December. But I went off and I went on binge. I went to um, New Year's Eve in Scotland and I just drank solidly for two or three weeks. And it was at that point, suddenly, I started to look for, I need help. Um, I went to a friend's place, I stopped drinking. And it's been, yeah, it's almost 20 years now since I last had a drink. Um, it was kind of February to it was around this time 20 years ago and I started to look for retreat centers look right I need to have a break I went for a break for a few weeks and while I was there I realized how much of a mess I was three weeks wasn't enough I realized I needed something long term where I didn't have to pay lots of money and I would be fed and I could work in return and synchronicities doors opened I ended up uh, connecting to an ex-monk and he gave me the contact details of this monastery I contacted them and they said oh we're looking for someone to come and cook can you come for 10 days so I'm like sure that would be great so I went for 10 days and three and a half years later <laughs> I was like okay right the abbots you know so it wasn't a conscious intention I need to go to the monastery I was a mess mm. I mean I see. suicidal you know realising what a mess I was and it was I went for 10 days and once I was there 
You know, I'd been offered when I went into the monastery, I'd been offered the managerial role using in the same company that I'd gone to Africa with in Thailand to basically have my own house, my own car, to run this um, volunteer organization. And all my family were like, you've got to take that, Piers. And when I got to the monastery and I realized just how much of a mess I was, it was like, no way. And everyone else was good, but this is the perfect opportunity. You're obviously going to take that. And I'm like, no, I need to, I need to heal myself first. Yeah. Um, that's so fascinating again. And I'd love to hear, you know, from your time in the monastery, obviously this conversation is all about healing trauma. Mm, and from mm. what you're saying, you, you recognize that you had some trauma there to heal. Mm, I'd love mm. to hear, you know, how that process was, what happened and how you felt by the end of it. Yeah, so, I mean, this is not for everyone. Not, not everyone who goes through trauma needs to go through the experience I went through. But for me, it was really, really tough. I would liken it to, you know, it was like hell for me. It was really difficult. I'd always been running. I'd always been indulging in my addictions. And therefore to stop, you know, in the monastery there was no TV, no internet, no, I couldn't, uh, self-pleasure, there's no sex, you know, no sexual contact, no eating after midday. There was very few things I could do. So I could work, I could meditate, I could exercise. And that was roughly it and eat up until midday. So there was very few things. So it was a bit like going cold turkey. And it was really, really tough. And at the same time, I had the support of the monks. And I was working with one of the top Jungian analysts who was a supporter of the monastery. And I would make a journey once a week uh, from the monastery to her where she was, which was about a seven hour round trip to then do three or four hours of Jungian analysis. I was recording my dreams. So suddenly I didn't have all of the external um, uh, distractions. Suddenly I was spending all my time painting, uh, reading, writing, um, really delving deep. But it was really, it was so difficult. Uh, I can't, uh, you know, it's really difficult to describe. Um, but like I say, I had the support of the monks. I had the support of the analysts, of the lay supporters. Uh, and that structure and it was an initiation initiation in the old style of you know getting uncomfortable moving from boy to man and I think I had that realization in my 20s in the monastery I was still a boy I was in a man's body but I was still a boy and the transition was becoming a man and yeah and I think yeah and it's kind of answering one of your questions later on but one of my biggest insights was about what did I learn and I brought this into relationships is letting go of getting my own way mm. Mm. you know the boy for me it's like I've got to have my way I've got to be structured whereas in the monastery I realised I just need to let go here let go of trying to control everything and I see that a lot of people who've had trauma bring that into a relationship they bring that control because they had no control as a child they bring that controlling energy and therefore one of the key teachings is let go of getting your own way mm. maybe your partner's right 
<laughs> as hard as that might yeah. seem, maybe she's right. Maybe he's right. I get it. Makes sense, Pierce. I, I wanted to go and talk about trauma. And mm-hmm. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. How would you define a trauma? Because, well, some people have this image that it's like maybe you're in a war and people are getting blown up and that's mm. a trauma. But what what would you say the different range of experiences are that you would consider as trauma? Thank you. Great question. I did actually, I was speaking to one of the monks I lived with a couple of days ago and we were talking about trauma and he sent me a... Um, some writings and it was a quote from Gabor Mate who's one of the the, the principal um, guys speaking about he's a, a, a retired physician who's worked with trauma for many years and he says trauma is an overwhelming threat that you don't know how to deal with so trauma is not the bad things that happen to you but what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you So what that means is that while one person might have some event happen to them, their partner shouts at them, to some one person that might not be affect them at all. To another person that might be really traumatizing because they had a dad or a mum who Mm. used to scream and scream and scream when they were young. So that's really important because sometimes we label, oh that's not trauma. And as I mentioned earlier, talking to uh, Ulf Sandstrom yesterday on my podcast, he's saying that, you know, we've all gone through different levels of trauma. The other aspect, and this comes from the National Institute for Clinical Application of Behavioral Medicine. That's a long acronym, a long name, saying basically we have two main forms of trauma, intrusive trauma. And that's often the violent types that you've just mentioned, the war uh, rape, you know, maybe being beaten as a child or bullied. And that's quite a small number of people. Um, and often when we hear about trauma, we say, well, I didn't have that. So obviously I, I don't have trauma. But what they then talk about is this idea of relational trauma. And relational trauma is negligence, abandonment. And to some degree, because our parents are human, they're not perfect, we were, were often going to have had negligence or abandonment as a, as a child, um, you know, or we might have just felt not loved, you know, and if you've gone to boarding school, the chances are you're going to really have felt that abandonment. If you go at age eight or at age 11, or I know some people who went age four, they're separated from their families, they're left with strangers, for three weeks, six months, I've heard. Um, and they say relational trauma, that's quite insidious on one level, that we just see it as normal. But actually, you know, these types of trauma are, are just as important and um, key as intrusive trauma. Um, so that's it's, how I'd yeah, really define yeah. it. That's a really great point. And I love the fact that you say about abandonment. And mm-hmm. I guess just to build on that abandonment, I guess it could be like, you know, I felt abandoned throughout my whole childhood, for example, or it could be that for most of the time, my parents were great, but then there were some moments when I needed them and they just weren't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess most of us must have experienced that on some level because our parents have got their lives and commitments and 
mm-hmm. they're just not always going to be available in most cases for at least some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- would you say it's fair to say that most of us, maybe all of us, would have experienced something of that in our childhood? I think so. I think so. And I think this is only, I mean, speaking with this attachment-based trauma um, specialist last week, and she's saying that it's only really since 2015 that traumas, it's been realized how important it is and what an impact it's had on society. And, And therefore, yeah, I feel that most of us have had some form of trauma or another. But I think where we can sometimes get stuck is that we think, oh, I've had trauma. You know, it's like they have this movement. This lady I was speaking to, Suzanne Zedek, she's set up the ACEs, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences in Scotland. And we can look at that and go, oh, my God, I've got these many ACEs. So it's a question. Um, you're, you answer questions. Uh, one to ten there's ten questions if you say yes to them that's considered that you have an ace Um, and they say that those who have the most amount of aces are often those who are in prison who are perpetrators of violence or who really struggle but what I think is really key here is not that we get lost there is then realizing we can heal this Mm. okay I've had this experience we all have ah now I can do something about this and there's, you know, very key symptoms that if we've had trauma. It's um, so. a really important point, Piers. I, yeah, I completely agree with that, that I guess even acknowledging, like being real with ourselves, okay, I've had this experience, there's a danger that it can then become an excuse or maybe even blaming people. Mm-hmm. You know, why weren't they there for me? Why did they allow this to happen? And, you know, we can almost become a victim of these experiences if we're not careful can't we yeah 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 and i think there's i think it's abraham maslow that we can either step forward into growth or back into safety i feel back into safety it's like if we do that in every moment you know we we're always taking a step back and for me that's often into victimhood that i'm a victim of had a re- and that was me for many years you know my experience at boarding school growing up were terrible on one level and I went into victim and actually now it's like I'm learning to step forward so Abraham Maslow says you can also step forward into growth and Mm. if you keep Mm. doing that rather than being a victim and going you know why me one of the questions I used to say is why has it always happened to me why me we'll always find an answer to that which is because I had a hard upbringing and we just create that mental loop. And one of the ways is to ask better questions. What do I want here? What do I want to bring to this relationship? How can I be happy in this moment? And to answer those questions, you then set up that part of your mind to go, oh, just by being grateful that she's amazing, this woman. He's amazing. Because he does this, this, this. Yeah, there might be one thing that he does that annoys the hell out of me. But if you focus on that, that grows. Whereas if you focus on what is working, that grows. Mm. That's a great point, Piers. Thanks for that. You know, there's probably some people listening today that are going through some difficult experiences, mm. maybe either right now or from the past where we're still in the midst of this experience. And I'd love to get your thoughts on how we can start to turn it around, as you say, stepping forward into growth instead of stepping back into safety what 
what can we start to do to try and shift that would you say yeah so i think first thing for me would be responsibility you know so instead of being victim that it's all you i have no power coming back to responsibility and my wife first mentioned this to me about 10 years ago who you asked earlier about in your questions about who was my greatest teacher definitely my wife she's amazing amazing lady who's taught me so much and I've learned so much from her and she said to me this idea of responsibility it's the ability to respond in any given situation it's again coming back to Viktor Frankl's idea of stimulus response I can can I respond and I'd say that's the first thing is realizing I can take responsibility here because what am I feeling what am I giving to this situation so that would be the first thing is that it's like taking the power back rather than saying I have no power go right yeah I can shift this you know, more and more science is showing. Heart Math Institute, work of Joe Dispenza, you know, these neuroscientists at Bruce Lipton showing that our heart fields have a, uh, it's about eight foot. Um, it gives off this energy field. So when we're in fear, we give off hormones. When we're in happiness and joy, we give that off. And so when we come back to responsibility, hey, I feel a bit funky. That's okay. What helped me to shift? So for me, you can come back to the basics. Exercise. What am I eating? How is my sleep routine? Taking care of those basic things. And then that will then mean that, oh, next day, I'm less likely to bite when my partner says this because I'm taking care of myself. So I think realizing that I can do something. You know, and this is the work I do with clients is I say, I need you to commit to having a daily practice. Because it's like a cup. You fill your cup up every day. You know, throughout the day it gets depleted. But most of us have an empty cup and we try and give to our partners. We go, there we go. And they're like, but you're giving me nothing. Whereas if we fill ourselves up, we're in that great space, we feel happy, joyful, and then if something comes up, we can hold the space better. Um, so I would say that's, mm. for me, one of the keys is, you know, that responsibility. Um, sure, they're sure, they're so powerful, absolutely, Pearson. And, and if we don't take responsibility in that way, if we do keep let's say projecting the trauma or we we carry it with us how how do you think that affects relationships if we have these unhealed traumas yeah so i think how it affects relationships is that you know they can become more like a battleground they can become fragmented or you know and i again i come back to an analogy that i i I use this technique called the iceberg technique. And I say that often in our lives, we bump into the tip of the iceberg. And we're like, it's so annoying. They've left their washing on the floor. Tip of the iceberg. And why does it annoy me so much? It's because underneath the surface, there's hundreds, if not thousands of times that you were maybe, as a child, being told, 
why don't you clean your room? There's that energy there in your body, you know, so the body is the conscious mind. That's, I mean, the, the mind's the conscious, that's 5%. The unconscious is 95% of our reality, the iceberg under the surface. So really, you know, one of the things is just to become mindful. Um, but if we don't, that's what happens is, you know, I think Gay Hendricks uh, in his book, um, Conscious Loving Ever After, saying if something's happened more than three times, know that it's something within you. If it's something which has annoyed you more than three times, what is it within me? And therefore, I take responsibility. Oh, I can do something about it. There's an iceberg here and I can heal. Uh, I, I can heal that. So that's often how it shows up. You know, we're very calm and happy. And then ah, they do something and we're triggered. That shows that there's some, you know, there's some pattern going on there. If there's some energy yeah. or a charge. Um, yeah. And to the other partner, it's like, but you were really happy and suddenly you flipped. What happened? And they don't understand. It doesn't make sense. You know? Um, yeah. I was going to mention that, Piers, you know, when, with respect to our partner, where mm. I'm sure there are people listening today where they they see that as a trauma, but the trauma feels like it's more in the other person. Yeah, yeah. Like the yeah. other person is reacting in ways that we find difficult to understand. Let's say they're overreacting, things are, you know, getting really uncomfortable, you know, disproportionate to the situation. And maybe we have the sense that, well, my partner has got something. There must be something in his or her background something that he he or she hasn't dealt with yet mm -hmm. what would you say to people where they feel that the trauma isn't so much in themselves but more in the other person so i think one of the things my wife said to me is um her name's michelle is this idea that you know we're mirrors for each other the light and the dark so we meet people who are you know very similar to us we have similar things that we like but then uh, we also have the shadows so often you know again Jungian Jung spoke about this this idea that you will see your unconscious in another person and you'll say it's them but it's often because we can't see it within ourselves because it's unconscious it's under the surface we go I don't have it they will have something under the surface, but you will also have. And if we are in victim, we will just go, you've got to sort it out. When we become proactive, we go, hey, I will sort my stuff out. I will deal with my stuff. And I will deal with, yeah, <laughs> what, what's my aspect? And often when you do that, you inspire the other person to start, you know, working on themselves. Because they see you changing. You're happy. You don't get triggered half the time. And they then go, what are you doing? Whereas if we try and force them to change, it's like, you know, how many times have we had that in our lives? Someone said, you need to do this. And you're like, hey, go away. Leave me alone. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's the same in relationships, even more so. If someone says, you've got to do your work. It's like, I I'll do my work. I'll come back to me. I'll keep coming back to me. Ask, kind of be the best version of myself. Absolutely, I love that, Piers. And ultimately, as you say, that's the only person 
we can really work on here, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. It's like for as long as our attention is on what, what the other person should be doing, then it's not going to work so well. So that's a really great, um, great point. Um, I wanted to ask as well about men, because I know you work a lot with men and uh, you're very familiar with the particular challenges that men have. Mm. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, you know, with men in particular, in terms of the kind of traumas that we have, how they affect us, how we deal with them and how they affect our relationships. Yeah, so I think, you know, on a on a basic level, when a woman is stressed, the woman's mind, what does she like to do? She wants to speak. She wants to chat with friends. That's when she, you know, and often a man, when he comes home, his wife, they meet. Often she's going to want to speak. That's the way a woman's brain is, is wired. A man's brain, what does a man often like to do if he's had a stressful day? He wants to go into his cave. And so it is with, say, trauma, that often a man won't want to share the trauma. The woman will want to speak about it and they, she finds she doesn't want to be fixed. She just wants to be heard because she will process that in, the, in a different way. Whereas a man, we almost need to go within. But at some point, I'd say one of our keys, and you know, you asked the question um, on the sheet about men's work, is being in that space to share what can we do as men is like to have a safe space that I can just go, hey, what? I'm really struggling in my relationship at the moment. And because we don't share, we've gone off to our cave. We think it's only us who's struggling. When we hear other men speak, we then realize, oh my God, we're 20 in this room and everyone's struggling in relationship. I'm not the only one. Um, so yeah 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 that's a really great point absolutely i was going to come on and talk about that in a moment the, mm. the power of men's work you know men getting together mm. and uh how you know for many men we don't have much opportunity to do that just because of culture you know living with our partners and families and other commitments that we have mm. um maybe we can come on and talk about that, that now what would you say has been your biggest the biggest benefit that you've enjoyed you know, through that men's work, connecting with other men and sharing together? Mm, I think I didn't ever really trust men. So a bit, my father was an alcoholic, got an aggressive man, military. I didn't really trust. I was very sensitive as a boy. And then boarding school again, I didn't trust. Things happened to me that I didn't trust people. So one of the things, kind of going back a little bit to the, your last question, I feel is that a lot of men, we and women, we we just rely on our partners. Whereas I was hearing someone speak last a few days ago and then saying that it's a a tribe that brings up a a, a, a child, a community that brings up a child, and it's the same in our relationship. It's a community that we need support from, not just from our, our one partner. So for me, one of the things is we start to cultivate relationships with other men as a man or with as women, with other women that you have that person to go and speak to when you're struggling. You know, and I've begun doing that over the last three or four years that I didn't do before. I have men that I can just go off for a walk 
check in with. So how that's developed in relationship to men's work is I didn't trust men and now I'm trusting men. And I feel like before I felt very alone. Now it's like, oh, I have this brotherhood. And it's like in the work I do with boarding school or, you know, trying to change education. I now have this network of men behind me who are like, right, how can I support you, Piers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let me know. So I feel I've got these men behind me who have my my back. Whereas I didn't have that before. And part of that is because I'm giving to the community. And therefore, you know, I'm giving and therefore they give back to me. And I feel that's been a huge difference is just knowing I'm not alone. I've got this support uh, to to, to have that. Mm, Absolutely. It's really, really powerful. As you say, it's something so needed in our culture because of our living situations. You know, so many people living with their families, partners. What do you think happens though, Piers, if we don't have that support from, let's say, other men, or if you're a woman, from other women, and you're just relying on your partner, let's say you're you're heavily dependent really on your partner to, for support, what do you think happens to the relationship? I think, yeah, I mean, I think it just it puts a lot of pressure onto the relationship you know rather than us relying on an elder to go and speak to in the village or when we're we're struggling or we want a bit of wisdom or a friend to go out for a walk with we're relying on our wife or our husband for all of that and therefore it puts a lot of pressure on them rather than having 10 people doing 10 different roles we now have one person doing 10 different roles and therefore you know it just means it can feel like a bit of a pressure cooker and what Mm. we've seen a lot during lockdown and over the last couple of years is relationships have broken down because it's just become it's pressure cooker um so if you don't have that in your life it's like starting to cultivate it there's so many men's group like Menfest or Mankind Project or um, these different organisations or Women Within. And it's like, I can do something. Take responsibility. I can cultivate these relationships, these spaces where I can share, lessen my load and not just dumping my stuff onto my partner. Because after a while, it's like, whoa, it becomes, I can't cope with this anymore. It comes too much, absolutely, Piers. And what we'll do in the in the show notes is we'll include some links to those resources mm. that you mentioned. Mm. Um, I was going to say as well that I think it can be really powerful even just to reconnect with our friends. Mm. Uh, quite often we have connections, don't we, that we don't necessarily maintain or cultivate those friendships. We sort of neglect them mm. a bit. Mm. So even just reaching out back out to those people that we've known from the past and you know we found to be a supportive presence that can also be a really great starting point. What, what do you, you think? Yeah, of course. Yes, yes. I think, you know, it, that's a great thing to do. And also be aware of what do I want from this relationship? Because sometimes I've, I've found when I've moved often places, the friends I've had have fallen away. And partly because as I've grown, they've not grown. And therefore sometimes if you this is what i'm looking for and be honest 
You know, if you've got friends who just go down the pub and that's all they do or just watch football rather than, oh, actually, I just want to talk. I, I need a space. Let's go for a walk or do something different. I'm not saying those things are wrong in and of themselves. But if that's all you do, you know, it's like, so, yes, I think that is great. Um, and often we can inspire our friends. If we go, hey, I'm doing a men's group. Do you want to come? And they're like, yeah, let's try this out. You know, and I found that with some of my friends from boarding school is as I've grown and developed 20 years ago, we kind of we went separate ways. And now we're at that point that, oh, we've got a lot in common now. You know, we have these these shared memories. And as I've kind of done that, then our relationships got closer again. So, yes, yes, I think greater. Great point. Fantastic. And I wanted to come on and talk about resilience. Mm. And I know you've mentioned this in your book, Piers, about developing resilience. Mm. And this feels like it goes hand in hand, really, with what we've been discussing so far. I'd love to get your thoughts about how you think resilience can be developed and how it supports, really, what we've been talking about. Yeah, interesting. So one of the things I find with learning is I'm always learning. I study every day. I'm always reading books. My bookshelves are you know, full of books. And my understanding of resilience has changed since I wrote that book. So I see that there's three stages now. You've got, we've got fragile. So, and this comes from Nassim Taleb. And so he says, fragile is, is imagine a box and it's got fragile written on it. Candle with care. And that's how often we are. That's how I was for many years. You know, you say something, ow, that hurts. You know, then you've got resilient and the resilient is a bit like a cup. You you can handle challenges, but after a while, you just need to have a break to fill your cup back up again. So that's resilient. The third stage is anti-fragile. And the idea is, is if you knock my box, I'm going to get stronger. You know, if a challenge comes up, it's like brilliant, bring it on. And this is kind of teachings of the stoicism this idea that um, the challenges make me stronger. Uh, and so that's kind of my understanding starting to develop over the last few months, last six months of, oh, there's that third stage of, you know, it's really challenging at home with my partner. It's like, great, this is how I learn. Reframing it rather than being fragile, going, oh, God, not again, I can't do it. Because we're giving that vibe off into the relationship. It's like, oh, Rather than, you know, second stage might be grin and bear it. Whereas third stage is like, great, this is going to teach me how to become a great lover or a great communicator. It's like, yeah, let's do it. And we give off excitement rather than defeat. So, yeah, I yeah, think. I see. It's, yeah, really fascinating. So I think, yeah, cultivating these things um, and, and, and reframing, moving from victim into you know, into benevolent man, benevolent woman, into right. How do I? Yeah. How do I give to this relationship? And I see that a lot of us, we are in relationship with takers. We take. What can I get from them? Oh, I want this. I want that. Rather than flipping it around into giving, how may I give 
really serve you. And my wife comes back to this a lot, this idea of presence. How can I be fully present as an as a man? If you can bring that into a relationship with a woman, your full presence, looking at her, listening to her, feeling into her. You know, my wife said, that's what she wants as a woman. Um, that's so, right. And, and particularly now, Piers, you know, we we live in a very distracted society, don't we? Mm-hmm. You know, where, you know, we've got social media over here, the TV over here. We've got, you know, unlimited, really, distractions all around us, you know, advertising mm-hmm. and so on. And um, that quality of presence that you're describing becomes a real commodity, doesn't it? it? If we can, If yeah. we can bring that. Um, what what are your thoughts then? How if if someone wants to develop that sort of presence, what kind of things should they start doing to develop yeah. that? So yeah, yeah, and I've come back to this idea of you watch a child nowadays with their parents. Often the parents are on their phones. I mean, I've been down at the beach, and I've got to see this this young child pulling on daddy's arm like this, and they're on their phone and pulling, and it's a bit like in relationship our partners are asking for our presence so one of the things is six o'clock have a a pm curfew turn your phone off both of you you know it might be a little bit challenging but get creative what are we going to do tonight well let's go for a meal what we could go for a walk or should we go for a swim you know cinema it's like to get creative so that's one of the things to cultivate presence you know um, I've forgotten the name of the guy, but rather than trying to focus on two or three things to do at once, focus on one. I'm listening to you. And again, coming back to Gay Hendricks and Katie Hendricks, this idea that, you know, give each other that space te- for a 10 minute conversation once a day or once a week where you just listen to each other, share, mm. um, and without the phones on. So I will leave, turn my phone off and I'll leave my phone up here in my office and then I'll go downstairs. That's one thing. You know, other thing is, you know, come back to things like meditation. You know, you might think, well, what's the point? What do you think? If you want to be fit, you want to run a marathon, would you just go in April down to London and just start running? No, you would train. Same for us. If we want to train our presence, we need to go to the mental gym, which is meditation, focusing. So that would be a something every day, committing half an hour, do some breath work. It's often said Emma Seppler from the University of Stanford in her book, The Happiness Track, said it's very difficult to talk our way out of stress, but we can breathe our way. You're stressed with your partner. Breathe. Breathe in for four, out for six. That stimulates the heart rate variability. That goes. We go more into the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's simple things: breath, meditation, movement. Move the body. You know, I like to to stand up when I'm I'm working. Well, I'll go for a run, or I've got my weights here, so I'll I'll work out in between sessions. It's like. Yeah, get into the body. And when you're doing it, focus on that one thing rather than, duh, 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 well, I should be doing this. It's like, no, for this minute, I'm just working out. Um, so, yeah, just basics, meditation, breath, 
movement. Fantastic. That's uh, so simple and so powerful. And uh, yeah, something I think is so needed out there. And I've really appreciated today, Piers, you know, sharing your story as well as your insights around how to put this stuff into practice. It's been really, really interesting conversation. And as I was saying at the beginning, I've really appreciated our contact over the last few years mm. um, through different events, Menfest and so on. And um, I just wanted to ask as well, though, Piers, how can people find out more about your work to keep in contact with you and reach out to you? Mm. So I have a website, piers-cross.com, and I offer men's circles every two weeks and I offer coaching and then I, I have put content onto YouTube every every week and I do podcasts which at the moment they're weekly and I talk to different people in the field of trauma um, I've got uh, an author coming to speak next week and I you know so you know YouTube Piers Cross or Google Piers Cross you'll, you'll find Okay, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining us. And please remember to subscribe and to leave us a review. Who could you share this episode with that needs to hear this message? Share this episode and remember that the quality of your relationship determines the quality of your life. See you on the next episode.